Hey, will you join me in Psalm 139? You may have noticed we're spending a little summertime in the Psalms. And uh, we're going to continue on that for today and, and even next week, as we would take two weeks just to look into this particular psalm. I love the psalms because they're so rich in history. They speak of the things God has done. You'll find in the psalms um, synopsis or summaries of God's faithfulness, revealing how he led Israel from captivity into a close relationship with him. You'll see um, not only the history of, of God's faithfulness, you'll discover in an oddly encouraging way Israel's pathetic unfaithfulness and the resulting response by God of faithfulness. You caught that, right? Unfaithfulness revealing faithfulness, often resulting in more unfaithfulness, revealing more faithfulness. It's, just a, it's an odd thing, but you understand, and we read even in the New Testament that When we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He he literally can't stop being himself. And so we see in the Psalms these truths unveiled. We see the realization of of, um, creation. So much is declared in the Psalms regarding um, just his presence and and how he has created this world. And what we're going to look at today is revealing some very important stones in the foundation of your faith. Really, really important things. Because you and I, we live in a world where the thought and the the statement of absolute truth is under attack. People even try to indicate that there's no absolute truth. That's archaic. That's old. That's we we have changed. Society has grasped things in a greater and a different way. And and there are no no absolute truths, which is silly because that's an absolute statement that there are no absolute truths, so you contradict yourself in the declaration. But nonetheless, we're gonna, you're going to see it more and more in the world we live in, in the culture. But our, our foundation is not in contemporary shifts or present-day push or popular vote. We stand as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we stand on the foundation of the Word of God. And so let's look at a couple elements, some stones that we stand on that are so essential. I want to read through all of Psalm 139. And then today we'll come back and come, go through primarily the first portion. And then the goal is to then wrap it up next week. But let's catch the totality. Let's catch this particular psalm. It's so rich. It's so personal. And it's so important. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I I cannot attain it. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. 
Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. All right, let's just jump right back to to verse 1 and work our way through this, taking hold of what um, can be beneficial, what we can see that is foundational, and, well, really, I believe, gives us a a kind of a a good reset. Notice in verse 1, it's, O Lord... David, we know, is the, is the instrument that God is bringing this truth through, but he's also reflecting a relationship that an individual has with the living God. And he's acknowledging God, Jehovah, you, God. You know me. You have searched me and known me. And it really speaks there to examine thoroughly, knows completely, See, in a sense, for our minds to understand, we would see a little bit of a process. His perfect searching produced perfect understanding, knowledge of you and me personally. Now, I don't believe that had to happen. In other words, it's not like God doesn't really know you, so he has to kind of put you to the test. It's helping you and I to know that he knows everything about you, everything about me. And that knowledge is is summarized. In other words, he said, "I, I know you. I know you better than you know you. Notice also, it's not speaking of humanity in general. I know people. I know humans. God, you know how the world is. That is true. But note that God knows the individual, you and me, thoroughly, perfectly, and personally. Man, David said, you have searched me. That produces, I believe, in you and I and David, a wow and a woe, correct? A wow, like, God, you know what I can't seem to convey to people or where I'm misunderstood or these things have happened. God, you know, man, thank you. And then, you know. You know the other part of me, that other side of me that I don't want to talk about publicly. That part that I don't really want to be, you know, let it be evidenced or seen. You know, that's a woe. Because that is one of the things that, that is challenging to us. Because if he knows all things and he does, and he knows everything about me and you, we don't want to talk about it. We want to be built up by the good things we can comprehend or think of or elevate. 
it's, it's the whole picture that he knows. And it causes us to go, oh, oh. See, look in verse 2. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. See, knowing and understanding and accepting this truth that he knows you better than you know you. He understands the why, the motives, the intents. Long before they arrive in our conscious thought. You know where it says, you understand my thought afar off. That doesn't mean that God is distant and afar off and gazing upon us and understands us. I want you to consider it. That means he knows my thoughts afar off. Before they arrive in my consciousness, before they're even assimilated into my reason, he knows they're coming. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you and I, we, we, we reason things through and we work things through. We're, we're stimulated, we're affected by our senses, the, the, the body senses. We're stirred by many things, but we don't always get our motives, our intents. Let's consider Hebrews 4. Many of you have read it. Mark your hand or spot here in 139 of Psalms, and we'll go over to Hebrews chapter 4, specifically verse 12. It starts out speaking of the word of God and to give us a, a grasp, if you would, we want to consider John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, going on to say later in John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know this, this the word of God, although put together on paper or screen or stone, the word of God is presented to us in a way that we can read it and grasp it, but it's more than just letters on a page. It's the person, Jesus Christ, bringing these truths to us. So the word of God, God himself is bringing to you this, this instruction, this understanding, this, this, this peace, this hope. And notice what we're told about the word of God. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's consider what that reveals to you and I in regards to his word. It's powerful, it's living. You may have read a passage last month, you may have had a, a life verse for many years of your life, and now you read it again and it's got a different emphasis. It's not in any way an alteration, it doesn't change the truth, but the emphasis in your heart's different. There's a realization, why? Because it's living. It's not yesterday's word to get you started and then just kind of, okay, I'll go back to that one again and maybe it'll mean something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where there's parts and portions of scripture that they literally, in a sense, you would say, they just seem to come alive. And that's, the, that's God himself. But it's living and it's powerful. It's powerful in many ways, but consider that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, which we understand it cuts on both sides. It's able to cut through, and you see the picture being presented, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. So we're created, according to what we read in the New Testament, specifically in, I believe, 2 Thessalonians, that we are body, soul, and spirit. 
You and I, through just you know observation and some some science, some medical understanding, we can determine the body apart. But to separate the soul and the spirit is a little more complicated. Agreed. And so as we kind of wrestle and discuss and philosophize about what that looks like, we're told here that the word of God cuts right through the division of those things that's hard for us to figure out. It gets right to the point. And of the joints and the marrow, there's the body. It cuts through these different things and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. See, it, it, it reveals what compels us and what moves us. And we don't want to know that sometimes, agreed? You ever had an idea and engaged, initiated an action with what you thought was the right intention, but later have it be revealed differently? I'm going to share a story some of you have heard. I don't share it. It's kind of a, an embarrassing story, seriously, but it was, it's an important part of my life journey in this regards. It was over 30 years ago. As a young Christian, I'm trying to figure out how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a man in the workplace, and that whole, everything's new. My language is having to change. My looks are having to change. Everything in my life is kind of changing, and I'm, I'm okay with it. I want that. Next door to us, Grandma Betty lives, not a grandma by bloodline, but just neighbor, you know, an elderly lady. Well, it's wintertime, it snows, and I shovel my sidewalk, and I realize I, I need to go shovel her sidewalk. There's a vacant lot between us, real narrow. So I go over there with the intent to shovel her sidewalk. You know why I wanted to shovel her sidewalk? Because she was like in her upper 80s at that time, I believe. She couldn't do it herself. She rarely even went outside. But for people to bring the mail or someone to bring services or groceries, it's just, it's just the right thing to do. Agreed? It's the right thing to do. You just get your shovel, go get her done. So I did. I got over there. And of course, she was, um, see, I tried to put it delicately for service. It didn't work. Um, but I'll just put it accurately. She's just a cranky old lady. You know what I mean? She, she would just look out the window at you and, and just peek through the curtain, you know. And, and she was just kind of jaded a little bit, I would say. So anyway, I'm shoveling the, the steps and I'm on the, side, or sorry, on the sidewalk and she peeks out, you know. And then looks back, pulls back when I, she sees me or I see her. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I understood. That's just life, no big deal. Anyway, I'm jumping along and I'm singing worship songs. I'm thinking and I'm just shoveling. I'm partway down the sidewalk. And this thought comes in my mind. Now, my intention, my compulsion, my motive is to just help this lady out. And this thought goes through my mind. Maybe she'll put me in her will. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing because it's gross. You're laughing. Like, really? I literally stop. I'm, I'm almost nauseated. Because I really thought my intention was to do a good deed. And I'm like, I imagine I'm standing there with a shovel, like, and she peeks out again, like, is this kid ever going to finish the job? You know? But I realize in this moment, it's like, God, is that why I'm doing it? Is, is that really what's going on? And I, I understood something in that moment. When you have a good motive, most always there's a leech motive that attaches itself to the life of that good motive and sucks the blood out of it, sucks the life out of it. 
It's not the main motive, this leech motive, but it caused me to go, God, why, why would I even think that? And of course, I did finish shoveling and, you know, caused me to think things through. And I realized this verse just so come true. I don't know the thoughts and the intents of my heart. I will still move forward with what seems to be the right reason, but I want to be corrected if necessary, cautioned if need be, aware of other things that will attach themselves to good intentions. And I believe the word of God is what brings that to us. You don't, we don't know ourselves, but when we'll let the word of God cut and convict and draw us to him, we'll actually find it encouraging. Let's, let's jump back and move back over to Psalm 139. With that thought in mind, that God convicts and cuts, and notice it says in verse 3, you comprehend my path, snow path or whatever path, and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. He's familiar with. God knows you very well as you draw, he draws you closer to himself. He knows what he gets, okay? He, he knows the full deal. And as he draws you closer to himself, he, 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 he continues to convict and encourage. See, it's easy to fool people, but God is not fooled. Can we agree on that? It really is easy to fool people. First person you'd fool is yourself, and the second would be people around you. But, but God is not fooled. God is keenly aware of all of your ways. And that is, once again, a contrast. It's a great comfort. Agreed? He's keenly aware. And it's a great concern. It's like, you're keenly aware of all my ways. Okay, good. I'm glad you know that situation and this scenario and that relationship. Okay. Oh, wait. You know all of my ways. He's familiar with everything that I don't even want to talk about, like that story I shared. And it's a great comfort and a great concern. That's a healthy way to live life. To be comforted by God and deeply concerned about your persuasion. How you may in, try to uh, sell your, your situation, your position, right? We all have ways that we make it. Who wants to get up in the morning and go, how can I make myself look bad in this situation? <laughs> Nobody. We all are going to look like, how, how, how does this really look in favor to me? And, I, and that's a great concern for me. And it's a great comfort, too, because I say, Lord, you, you can cut through all this. You, you're, you're acquainted with all my ways. Look in verse 4. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. What a comfort. As you're singing songs, as you're driving to work, as you're worshiping God, what a great comfort to know that he knows your words. And what a deep concern to know that he knows your words. To praise God in one moment, 30 minutes, three hours into employment, to be cursing and cussing someone out on the job site, journey with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 addresses this issue of our conversation, of our tongue, of our vocabulary. And we'll just look at a portion beginning in verse 8. In James chapter 3, verse 8, the, the chapter starts by addressing the reality of what we say and how our tongue can be. And it says in verse 8 of James 3, No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Oh, no, wait. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Do you ever hear that one? Yeah, we grew up with that lie, that hogwash. There's probably nothing that hurts and cuts more than words. 
You can handle an abrasion. You can deal with the bruise. But the cutting tongue, just it, 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 there's nothing that compares to that. And he's saying, listen, who can, you know, the, the, it's, un, it's, un, it's a deadly poison, verse 9. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the image, the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. God knows that journeying right now back to Psalm 139. These things ought not to be so. What did it say in Psalm 139? There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. This is where we're at risk of going crazy when we start rationalizing and working this out. You know everything. And you know those words of comfort, the words of praise I've offered up to you, and that uh, empathetic, uh, well-spoken word to that person in difficulty. And you know this garbage coming out too. Oh, Lord, man, I can't reconcile. Here's the beauty to God being bigger than you. He's bigger than you. <laughs> you know, he is perfect in all of his ways. And so these things that cause like uh, contradiction and, and confusion, he brings himself to the picture to bring calmness and to sort it out and to remove from you, from me, these words. He brings it by way of conviction and cuts deep to our heart and reveals to us, you're, you're, you're not listening to me, you're listening to you. If you spend too much time listening to yourself, that's what you'll have, self. But if we'll spend time listening to the Lord, you know, your counsel is the worst counsel when it's the only counsel. The Bible says there's multitude in wisdom in the wisdom of counselors. In other words, being able to receive from the word an encouragement word from another person to be able to move forward. Because see, God, he still loves you even though you live out a little bit of James chapter three sometimes, even though there's things that you don't want to talk about in church, but you know, it's just a part of your life. See, I love this truth. God does not print trading cards. So you know what trading cards are? You know, back in the day, I'm old, but you know, you had your baseball cards, had all the stats on it, had a picture of the player, football cards, basketball cards, all that, everybody kind of jumped on the thing. You know, God does not print those. You know what those stats were. Oh, good thoughts? Oh, he's, he's nice words. He won. Bad words, one. Oh, he's one and one. Sweet, I'm, not, I'm, I'm doing better. But what when your stat card, what when a printout says, you know, you, you're 14 and 709? You're, 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 it just doesn't look good. Aren't you glad he doesn't produce that and publish it and send it out? Now, get this. Stat cards keep track of your performance among people. He's aware of the stats, but he prioritizes differently. Does that make sense? He prioritizes differently. It says of you and of me and God's engagement and awareness, you know it all together. Everything, you know it all. And man, you have to remind yourself, and you still love me. It doesn't mean he's, ah, I'll just overlook the sin. He cannot do that. He's just and perfect in all of his ways. The very sin that we commit is the very sin that caused the the brutal murder upon the cross where he died for us. He won't just overlook it, but he does remind us, let go of it. 
I have taken that from you. Please don't take it back. Please do not let that destroy you. Verse five, you have hedged me behind and before. It really speaks of protection and provision. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. This protection and provision, um, it's not a loss of freedom. Rather, it speaks of the peace that comes from knowing you are well taken care of. You remember what Jesus said of himself, that he was the shepherd, right? The good shepherd. He said, we are sheep. Even in Isaiah, we're told that we, like sheep, have gone astray. So there's this comparison of, 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 for us to understand of creatures. Like, we are like sheep. Well, consider Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, which means I, I shall not lack, He makes me to lie down in green pastures, which means he brings me to a place that enables me to stretch out as his creature to be at ease and to be peaceful. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. We went there from verse 5. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me as the shepherd leading the sheep, not withholding good, but rather teaching and training, speaking to us. You know, when God is hedging us in and enclosing us, it's not to take from us, it's to provide for us protection, provide for basic needs, and it's also to calm us in the midst of various storms. So he, he hedges us in, in a good way. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Knowledge, awareness, his, David's realization of what God knows and just a, a, just a hint, just a very a, a minute glimpse of what God knows about David. He realized, I can't get a handle on this. I, 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 can't, I can't grasp the magnitude of this, nor can you. That doesn't mean we would just say, well, I can't know it all, so I don't want to know any of it. But rather, we challenge, like, man, I can't, I, can't, I can't grasp this. Now, sometimes when we're at that point, we realize um, our own state and we get an imbalance in our logic. And so we get a little poor me syndrome, PMS type of a thing, where we just feel sorry for ourselves too much. And in feeling sorry for ourselves, we then determine, you know, I just, I need to pull back. I had a person tell me one time, I, you know, I just I haven't been to church much because I just, I got to get my act together. I got to get cleaned up. I got to... And some of the things he was doing, I understood the logic. But I'm like, well, you, you don't need to pull back from God in those times. You actually need to draw nearer. It's not reducing or removing yourself from his presence that will help your situation. It's actually drawing near to him. So let's consider what he, David says in this logic. So if I can't find peace with the knowledge of his presence, he knows my bad thoughts, he knows my good thoughts, he knows the thoughts and intents of my heart. You know, perhaps maybe I just need to get away for a bit. And often it's said in this fashion, I need a break. Um, I need some time to, to sort out what I believe. Uh, many of you, many of myself, I think most of us at one point or another, we decide, well, I'm just not going to go to church for a while. I got to sort some things out or whatever it may be. And some in hardship and, and hurt, I don't want to be near God right now. You know the thought? I just don't feel, I just don't want to. So where do I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
verse 8, there's this consideration. If, if I could somehow elevate and arise, if I could ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, Sheol, behold, you are there. Heaven is the highest, you know, the, the best possible place among heavenly creatures and life abundant. If I went there, well, you'd be there. But notice the other realization. If I descended to Sheol, to the lowest, the worst possible place in my attempt to escape the presence of God, among the dead and darkness and despair, I still could not escape him. He'd be there. He, it's, a, it's a complexity that many wrestle with, that God actually has some presence even in the place of darkness, Sheol, hell. But it's re- reconciled in your belief that God's omnipresent, that he's everywhere. It can't be everywhere except where you don't want him to be. It kind of would change the meaning. He's omnipresent and omniscient, all-knowing. And so he, David is realizing, even if I could go to this lowest possible place, I would still encounter you. I'd still be aware of you. I'd still know you're there. You won't leave me or forsake me. In verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, so if you could, if you could ride the morning wind moving you out from land to the center of the sea where there is no reference for land, where there's nothing you can see, just, just waves and clouds and sun. If you could get to there, David realizes you'd, I'd still, you'd still be with me. You still wouldn't have abandoned me. I still wouldn't have escaped you. Verse 10, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even there, in our attempts to get away, he is there. It, it, notice it's, and our attempt to move away, he says, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even in our attempt sometimes to try to move beyond what maybe we perceive a life of God would be, maybe it's a religious thing that we're trying to escape, maybe it's just, we're just confused. But even then, he's, in that moment is where he still will grasp and settle us. So many times, a person's attempt to escape God in their logic is actually a deep cry within them to encounter God. But it doesn't seem to make sense. Like, I just don't get God. I don't understand these things. These are so frustrating. I want to get closer to him to know it. That's an illogical conclusion, if there's any emotion. What do we find ourselves often saying? I just need to get away. I don't get this. I'm going to just go over here and do this and do that. And guess what you encounter? the very presence of God. In our most shameful, humiliating, pathetic attempts to, to feed the carnality, these, these bodies, oftentimes that's when we encounter God. In that attempt to, to snort or shoot or drink or bring some substance into our being to alter our perception of reality so that we can then pretend that everything's okay, we can numb ourselves, even in the midst of that, guess what? He meets you where you are. It even says that he, he holds you, even would lead you. I think a lot of times in our attempt to escape him, he's leading us around things that we didn't even realize. We're convinced we're completely apart from him. We're a prodigal son on our own journey, not realizing that he's actually protecting us. Even in the midst of our rebellion and resistance, he is there. If I shall say, verse 11, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be light about me. If I was to say that, he says, 
okay, I just need to get into the darkness. Just separate myself. David, I believe, at this time in his life, I believe he's writing with a little bit of reference. Not that he was trying to escape, but he did have an experience in caves, remember? When, when Saul was trying to kill him, he fled. When he was you know, trying to just sort out what God was doing in his life, he, he dwelt in some caves because it was a smart place to hide. But some of those caves, you can be sure, they were dark. We took our children to the craters of the moon many, many years ago, and we went back into this one particular cave. And as we got back into this cave, I had them all turn their lights off. And if you've ever been in that type of darkness, you're going to understand this explanation. You can feel it. It is, it's like you can just feel it right in your face. It's, it's an odd thing because the senses are kind of tweaked and trying to search for some stimuli. And you're like, ah, in this darkness. David is saying, even if I could draw into that darkness, you would still be there because, as we'll see in verse 12, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. See, that's the element of being creator who creates time continuum, day and stuff for you and I, but he's outside of it. Likewise with night or with dark and light. It's the same to him. He, he doesn't, you know, God, you know, he doesn't have to adjust. He, you and I, when we walk out of a building that's, you know, maybe a nice ambiance, a restaurant we'll think of, and into the sun outside, what do you do? Whew. You wait for your eyes to adjust from the darkness to the light. God does not have to do that. His eyes don't adjust. The darkness and the light are both alike to you, we're told. There's nowhere you can go to escape his presence. You cannot separate yourself from him. You can ignore him. You can sin and be relationally distant from him. But he is there. He never leaves you. He created you. And that's where I believe David is going, and we're going to wrap this up with this next portion. He created you. He knows you. He created an environment for you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Let's continue on in verse 15, and I'll come back to that thought. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. See, God knows you before you're known, before you're physically assembled, he's already made you. It's like, you know, we, we have a, a pretty big issue that has arisen again uh, this year, this week, relating to our Supreme Court. The Supreme Court made an emotional, politically driven decision that affects people. It was done in 1973. In 1973, a decision was made under the guise of abortion that this would be okay. See, Roe v. Wade is not about abortion. Roe v. Wade is about life. 
in the foolish of, foolishness of humanity to think they can determine who lives and who dies. The foolishness to say, we think it starts here, therefore if we remove it, this, this as they would say, what do they use the term, this um, product of conception, if we can remove it before it gets so big it gets evicted, called birth, if we can remove it before it's born, then it's not something yet. See, and I, I know this is a volatile issue, but can I just help you to go back to the real issue? Here's the, one of the problems. Two things I'm going to try to cover real quick. First of all, news and information does not always mean knowledge nor wisdom. So right now, we're at a time when news is promoted. We heard some great news this last week. But that news, you have to learn. We as a culture have to be better at this. Separating the news from the editorial. Separating the news, which is, has embedded in the articles, opinion. And, and, and culturally driven whatever. You, I, we, we have to see and read through. It's, it's my challenge to you. When you read the news, get the news and dump the garbage. Separate what really is there and from what is being thrust upon you. And that's on all issues, on all topics. Because if we can start realizing this was never about abortion. This was about denying human life from the very beginning. This was about feeding carnal pleasures from the very beginning. This was about politically driven agendas that are contrary to the word of God. From 1973 till now, it's always been about that. And don't get caught up in this angle and this opinion and this, well, the church should do this and this has got to happen because, no, let's just make it understand. God formed my inward parts, your inward parts, and then you could say he covered it with the mother's womb. God is the author of life. He is the one who has is, is literally told us. Hey, look at what David says. I'll praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm made by God. Humanity has this thing where we kind of collect information and we call it science. And then we distort the facts of statistics and science and make it a political or a personal opinion. And then we call it this. And when in reality, we don't know as much as we think we do. And we do know that God is the author of life. Notice it says here, not only would David respond, and you and I should respond, in praise. I will praise you because I am fearfully. That speaks of, of reverence and to revere God. That we are, very, we are given life. We're given a frame. We're given a body. That we would fear God. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. I haven't dissected it entirely. I'll only throw it out as a thought. But my soul knows things my mind won't agree with. Are you that way? Because soul, really your innermost being, there's times you get hold of that truth and it's written on the tablets of your heart. But your mind is in disagreement. Your mind is affected by the senses and the, all the stimuli around you. So you're bringing your mind, and the Holy Spirit is the one who does this. The presence of God in you brings your mind to understanding about the truth of God. That he is the one who knows us and formed us. My frame was not hidden from you. He speaks poetically in verse 15. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Conveying beyond any human comprehension. You know, we were built, we were formed, we were shaped. His eyes saw our substance. And being yet unformed. And in your book were written all the days fashioned for me. Before those days even started. So I hold this truth, I believe it's the truth, 
a thought, we could say at least. You cannot depart early. You are given certain days. You can, though, affect the quality of your life while you're here. You can do something to affect your life in such a way that you could have a very difficult latter day. But you won't depart early. Because those days were written before literally you could consider the foundation of the world. Because God's all-knowing. He didn't go, okay, let's see, earth, people, put them on it. Oh, wait, how long will they live? Well, let's see, maybe I could just do a blanket number. Maybe I could, you know, that's not in his processes. It's fully, fully known from the very beginning. Now, I did have a friend, a relative, say to me with a stench of mockery. He said it after his intelligence had been liquefied with alcohol, allowing the, the foam of stupidity to rise to the top, to where he said, you're telling me that all these people all across the world are praying to God, and he therefore can tell, tell which one's what and how these prayers are, and somehow this being that you imagine can answer all these different prayers of the world. I said, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. And he's like, come on, no, seriously. I said, well, you're trying to limit God to your range of reasoning, to your framework, to your fencing, to your capacity. But did you speak the world into existence? Did you broadcast the stars into place? As God said to Job, dude, wake up, my translation. You weren't there. How could we limit a creator who's shown infinite, beyond our understanding, creative capacity and ability? How could we limit him to by what we would perceive? See, I don't think God has any problem. He actually takes it further than just knowing your days. He said in the word to you and me, I've numbered your hairs. Okay, so that's going out on a limb if you want to think about it. That's knowing the hair on your head, what you would produce from birth to death. And he knows every single strand, and he knows the sparrows in the field. If you looked around, there's a lot of little brown birds, a lot of them. And he knows every single, not one of them falls to the ground without his knowledge. The capacity is beyond our, you can't just condense it, go, well, I think it's like this. No, David is conveying this truth that God knows everything about us, our beginning and our end. The day that we were born into this world, the day that we were even conceived, the day we were even being before we were assembled into form, who we are, God knows all this. And I'm not talking about pre-existence like some cults teach that there's some way you're, you pre-exist and you're brought in. And you, you see what I'm saying. God knows all this, brings us into being, knows our life perfectly. That's why we should be challenged in a good way to live with an awareness of his presence in such a way that we, we finish well. We finish well. Don't, don't just get close enough and say, I done okay. Finish well. It's much better. Who, who celebrates? You know, I started the race great. Crashed my car and ended up in a pit on the side of the road. I just had a great half race. You celebrate the finish, correct? You celebrate the finish of things. And I want to encourage you to just, you know, Finish well. We're going to stop right there. You got, we got some really interesting stuff. Next week we'll consider what it means, as David said, to have perfect hatred. That's probably not a 
sermon title you get to hear very often. <laughs> Maybe that'll be it. But we're going to look at that context of that within this picture. I do have to close with the verses 23 and 24 because it capsulizes the very relational reality to this psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's two possible ways you can process this. In a type of arrogant defiance, pridefully driven. Search me, God. See what you can find. I've been good. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I'm good. I don't recommend that one. I recommend this one, which I think is what David did at this season anyway. Search me, God. I don't know me. I think I got good intentions, but I don't know. Search me, O oh God. Would you take your loving wisdom and, and in your very presence, and would you filter through the thoughts and the intents and the motives and the moving of my life and my heart? Would you do that? And then, God, as you work through those things that cause me unrest and disturbance and anxiety, as you test me in all these things, you know I don't, as you test me, Could you lead me in the way everlasting? Would you lead me in your way to the very finish? So why don't we stand? The worship team's gonna come up and uh, we're gonna close in a word of prayer. Our prayer for today that we'll look at. And I know for some of you it's a little more challenging because you're used to assuming the prayer position, you know, hands like this, head like this, eyes closed. And I kind of encourage you, you know, on occasion... Like even here, you'll be able to look at the screen or even look in your own scripture, your own Bible at a portion that is actually a prayer from scripture. It's in Ephesians chapter one, verses 17 through 20. This was a a petition. It was a prayer of the apostle Paul preserved through history that we would also see the rich content of it and also request similarly. And so we're gonna pray looking at this passage and considering it with an attitude and a heart of prayer. And then we'll go right into continuing our time of worship, not only the study of the word, but the expression of gratitude and declaration through the use of music. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace. Lord, draw us close to you, each one of us. For some to take that first step of admitting they need you, humbly bowing before you and asking for forgiveness of sin, putting their faith in you, trusting you for this new life, believing that you will lead them in this new direction, this new hope, this new life, Lord. For all of us, having that confidence that you are God. You're the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and we ask, Lord, that you would give to each of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation as we grow closer to you, Jesus. We need the knowledge of you to penetrate our workplace, to be in our minds and thoughts as we work through ups and downs of daily life. That you, God, would bring to us the ability to see that our eyes, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That we would take hold of and know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of your glory, the glory of, of your inheritance for us, God. Mm, Lord, we believe that you offer us strength and hope. Oh, that we would take hold of the exceeding greatness of your power, which is offered to us, toward us, who believe. 
according to the working of that mighty power which you worked when you raised Jesus from the dead and placed him at the right hand of the throne of the Father. God, thank you. May the power that raised Jesus from the dead be realized by us, Holy Spirit, as you dwell within us. May we know your prompting. May we know your power. May we have a greater understanding of faith. And where faith is lacking, we humbly request a greater gift, more faith. To you be the glory, both now and forever. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.